Hello and welcome to Talking Euretina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McCray. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this podcast, we're going to dig into the subject of this year's ophthalmological lecture that will be delivered on the Saturday afternoon at this year's Congress in Amsterdam. Dr. Maximilian Fau, who is a clinician with a specialism in AMD and inherited retinal diseases at the Department of Ophthalmology in Basel University Hospital in Switzerland, will be delivering that lecture. We'll hear from him in a bit. First, though, on Monday, September 4th at 8 p.m. Central European Summertime, Professors Bart Leroy, Isabel Audo and Omar Maru will chair another U.S. in the case club, this time focusing on inherited retinal diseases. They are rare and difficult to diagnose, especially for those who don't see them often. So join our panel of key opinion leaders who will guide us through some cases and draw out the key learning points to identify and diagnose inherited retinal diseases and what you should do next if you encounter them. As always, you can join in with our live Q&A, share your thoughts and ask your questions about the cases being presented. That's Monday, 4th of September at 8pm Central European Summertime. Registration is open now on the Euretina website. Now, onto our podcast. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Maximilian Fau, who is from Basel University Hospital, Switzerland. He is delivering the ophthalmological lecture. And we're joined uh, to interview him by Professor Martin Zinkenegel. He is the editor in chief of the ophthalmological lecture, a member of the Retina Board, and he is from Bern University Hospital in Switzerland, also. Um, Martin, it's great to have you back. I hope you had a wonderful summer so far. It, seems like time is moving so quickly. We're only a couple of months, not that many weeks out from the Congress in Amsterdam, which is shaping up very nicely. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. It really feels amazing to uh, to have the Congress coming up and, and all these exciting lectures. And uh, of course, I'm really looking forward to, to hear the ophthalmological lecture uh, from Maximilian Fau. And uh, at this stage, I would like to congratulate him for winning this prestigious award. So just a, a couple of words about the ophthalmological lecture. It's uh, awarded to young, uh, young means below the age of 40, European ophthalmologists or clinician scientists in the field of retina research, who has sh shown outstanding talent for research and who is expected to be an exceptional talent in contributing further to the field of retina research during his or her further career. And I think this has been a great choice to have Maximilian Pfau as the recipient for the Ophthalmological Lecture 2023 at the Uretina Congress. And your talk is going to be on Saturday, I think, at 12 o'clock. Is this correct, Maximilian? Yes, correct. Thank you so much for the kind words. So um, maybe we can start with a short overview how you got into the position of uh, winning the ophthalmological lecture. So tell us about maybe in a couple of sentences what your career has been so far and where you work now. Yes, so after finishing medical school uh, in Heidelberg, I had the great pleasure of being accepted for the residency program in Bonn, Germany, which is, of course, extremely research heavy. And before starting residency, I could go for a three-month observership and research fellowship to the Duhini Institute with Vasada 
where I gained first research experience and then transferring to Bonn, uh, where I really got started in residency in geographic atrophy research in the research group of Monika Fleckenstein. Okay, so research-wise, how, like, how did you get into research? Can you tell me a, bit, a little bit about this? How did you kind of catch fire for research, your enthusiasm for research? Actually, the, the first opportunity to catch fire was a little bit before that, during my internship year, which I did in Zurich, Switzerland. And at that time, the first OCTA devices came up and was quite the hot topic back in autumn 2015. So I had this huge opportunity during my internship year to get into touch with the first commercial OCTA device. And of course, as an intern, you have more time compared to the clinicians in residency. So, so I was actually able to participate in the first project and, and that got me really exciting. And of course, it's this technological transformation that uh, sparked the joy. So moving from OCTA to, I think you did a lot of work on OCT and fundus autofluorescence. How did you develop your research career from Zurich on? So you went to Bonn and obviously with Van Koltz and with uh, Monika Fleckenstein, you were at the right spot to, to do imaging and uh, to investigate geographic atrophy. Was this something you chose deliberately to go to Bonn or was it just by poor chance that you applied to Bonn? No, no it was actually a very deliberate choice. So I, I looked at research programs predominantly in Germany or residency programs. And of course, Bonn stood out in terms of having the possibility to do research during residency as well, which in other residency programs is, was not as, as feasible at that time. So, so that's why I very much chose Bonn. And of course, I was very keen to go more into age-related macular degeneration, and that was also a fantastic fit. And then you moved on to the United States, as you mentioned, and now you're in Switzerland. So what do you think about or how do these different countries compare in regards to research? Can you give us an idea, you know, how Germany differs from the US and maybe Switzerland? So what do you think is an ideal environment to do research in a position you are in now as a young ophthalmologist? I think it's very hard to say because all three countries have some advantages and disadvantages. I think the difference between Germany and Switzerland is somewhat more obvious. So in Germany, in many ways, you have quicker turnaround times at all steps in terms of ethic proposals come back a little bit quicker. And also patient recruitment is quite different. So in Germany, if you ask a patient to participate, they will say 90% yes. But the problem is in Germany, patients, they don't tend to be willing to undergo extremely long examinations. So in that way, Germany, it's kind of like a car, which you can maneuver around quite quickly, where Switzerland, it feels more like a train. So doing an ethic proposal takes more time. You have to present much more detail, which forces you before starting the research actually to invest more intellectual thought in the research project. And um, then also patient recruitment is a bit different. Patients tend to be more educated on average in Switzerland. They ask before participating much more questions. But once they participate, it's kind of remarkable because then they really always come for every visit on time. And they will also be willing to undergo much longer examinations 
if you explain them ahead of time what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. So that so there's a big cultural difference. Okay, fantastic. So let's uh, bounce back to the ophthalmological lecture. Can you tell us what you're going to talk about? Is it uh, about the last 10 years of your research or are you also going to include some future research, some concepts about uh, uh, research in geographic atrophy? Yes, so it will also be the ongoing and the current research mainly, but of course it's based on, on my last five, six years of work and I mean when I started in some ways outcome measures were already settled people agreed that a larger area of RBE atrophy is not a good news for a patient so that really was accepted in the whole community as a surrogate outcome measure but it's fairly obvious and back then it was just obvious in a descriptive sense that outside the areas of atrophy you also have pre-atrophic changes and these are actually quite widespread and there has not been going much thought into it, what happens to the outer nuclear layer, to the photoreceptors, maybe one millimeters or two millimeters away from the atrophy boundary. And I think it's actually quite important to look at it because if you start an eye with a therapy, of course, the cells directly next to the RPE atrophy, it's like some kind of toxic neighborhood. They are likely to become atrophic either way. But of course, the cells which are further away from the atrophic lesion, you have a much higher chance of rescuing them in the long term. So what the lecture will be mostly about, it will be about geographic atrophy and Stargardt disease, but not looking at the already atrophic changes and their progression, but actually distant to the atrophy boundary, one or two millimeters away from the atrophy boundary. What are the earliest signs of degeneration, which we can monitor, and can we monitor these leading disease front changes instead of the trailing disease front in the center of the eye? So in, in your research and in your opinion, what's the best way to monitor these changes? Is it OCT? Is it autofluorescence or even microperimetry? What, what's the most fascinating tool we have at the moment to quantify these? I mean, it really depends when it comes down to biologically driven hypothesis testing. I think OCT is really the way to go, and especially now with the reanalysis of the phase two data for Pexetacoplan, I think it was remarkable to see that you don't do not only slow RPE atrophy progression, but also that you slow photoreceptor degeneration far away from the main lesion. And you really only can monitor that in a large scale in terms of OCT. That being said, of course, for an approved drug. It's kind of preferred to have actually a functional outcome measure that shows you that the drug truly has a efficacious effect for the patient. And there I'm a bit critical that the community moves a little bit too much uh, towards imaging endpoints instead of asking, does the patient really benefit or not? So when we're talking about clinical endpoints, do you have any idea what else could be used as a clinical endpoint for geographic atrophy? Yeah, I think actually for microperimetry, there is a large room of improvements. So some of the data is already published also from my time in Bonn, that instead of using these large microperimetry grids that test the whole back of the eye or the whole retina, they take a lot of time, a lot of test points, 68 test points, 12 minutes per exam. You can use this concept of patient-tailored perimetry where at the baseline visit, you define where's the junctional zone of the GA lesion, and then you specifically place the test points there, and then you pre-specify that you're going to follow these junction and zone test points. And 
with that type of approach, you would likely get a much quicker answer than using the standard approach of microprogrammetry. Do you think there's a role in clinics for this uh, tool to monitor progression? Like once a drug is approved, I actually think that there is not much need for microperimetry anymore. I mean, we and also other groups from Vienna have shown in the meantime that if you use OCT data and you have pre-trained a model that predicts microperimetry sensitivity from OCT data, that these models were excellent. You can predict for each individual location in the OCT the sensitivity of the retina with an error of plus minus three decibels. So I think in clinical practice, this will be the way to go. It's really questionable, do we need in the future to measure acuity and then microperimetry and so on? Or in standard clinical practice, I think it would be much more feasible just to upload the OCT into an AI software and then get all these functional readouts. However, in a clinical trial, I'm completely on the opposite side. There, I think we really should measure function to prove a functional benefit. I completely agree. Now, you mentioned AI-based uh, image segmentation to monitor progression. So what's your opinion on AI? You know, is it something that especially uh, young ophthalmologists will have more exposure to? Will this be something that will be, you know, soon in the clinics, these AI-based uh, algorithms to help treatment decisions? Yeah, I think the AI will take over treatment decisions, especially in, in the era of treating geographic atrophy, because of course, for exudative AMD, you can look at intraretinal and subretinal fluid and you can clinically see, does the treatment work or doesn't it work? But in geographic atrophy, the disease it continues to progress so on the level of an individual patient. There is absolutely no way how you could determine whether your treatment works or not if you don't have some AI which segments the lesion and then you project out the trajectory and see if the treatment now makes you deviate from that trajectory. And I think there are many great companies. I mean, you have in Bern Retin AI, then there is in Vienna Retin Insight, then there are other tools from Bonn with the GA grader. So it will be fantastic once we have all these tools available with our imaging system and just can use them daily. You also did quite a lot of research on Stargardt's disease. How does the research differ from your research on AMD? Is it pretty much the same, same imaging tools, or is, is there a different approach with uh, Stargardt research? So in terms of imaging tools, it's actually quite similar. Again, it's looking at photoreceptor degeneration far away from the main lesion. What makes Stargardt's disease, in my opinion, extremely interesting is that Compared to AMD, or in AMD, you have the problem that a lot of the genetic variants, they drive the risk of onset at what point you're going to get your first GA lesions or your CNB lesion. But then actually the correlation of high-risk genotype and then the phenotype, let's say something like reticular pseudodrusen and so on, these correlations, once you have manifest geographic atrophy, are actually quite weak. In Stargardt's disease, it's quite the opposite. So there you have a strong genetic component throughout the disease, and you can actually now build predictive models where for each individual ABCA4 variant, which a given patient has, you can predict what will be his progression rate in the future. And that makes it quite interesting from a biological point of view. Now let's switch from diagnostics to treatment. Uh, what's your opinion on the approval of the complement inhibitors? Now we have uh, Sifovira, uh, 
approved and now the C5 inhibitor is also approved. What's your opinion on these drugs? Are they going to change the way we handle our patients with geographic atrophy? I'm both. First of all, I'm extremely happy about the approval of both drugs and it's kind of a scientific success that for the first time we see a structural benefit and I think that's a huge step forward. That being said, I'm also quite critical at the same time because slowing in the range of 20% of disease progression is not a huge effect. And of course, the problem is Carolyn Clara and others have shown that patients on average, they only go on to live another seven or eight years once they have the diagnosis of geographic on, on average. So a 20% slowing of progression with having to go to the doctor all the time means that you will never really achieve a huge treatment effect because you don't have so much time to really make a huge difference. And I'm actually a bit um, afraid that some patients will end up being disappointed because they won't feel any functional difference. The two-year data doesn't show a big functional or no statistically pre-specified functional benefit. And there will be a disappointment. And don't know about your experience, but at least here in Basel, people have actually asked us now to go to the insurance companies to ask for cost reimbursement. We didn't get answers so far, but, but it, it will be tough to see whether patients are happy with that or whether they will stop treatment at some point. Yes, I think future will show, uh, but I think, uh, and I agree, it's a great first step to have something and uh, maybe we will get better tools to really combat um, geographic atrophy. So in your opinion, is this the only point of action to treat complement or would you see some different you know, treatment options to battle geographic atrophy and its progression? So I think that there would be two further avenues that really must be addressed in the future. The first one is that the chromosome 10 risk allele in HTRA1 or ARMS2 is not addressed by the current generation of treatments. Obviously, Roche has a clinical trial program going on in the chromosome 10 space, and that's important. And then the other thing which is not addressed yet I mean, I do a lot of dark adaptive vision testing and dark adaptometry with the whole idea that once you have a lipid spill within Brux membrane, vitamin A can't get through from the choroid to the RPE. And of course, all other kinds of nutrients can't get through from the choroid to the RPE anymore because you have this sudden interchange barrier. And by treating complement-associated inflammation, obviously, you might reduce cellular stress but you still have this physical barrier. And of course, other people have thought about protein one mimetics to really clear up this Brooks membrane component. What about in imaging? Do you think there's a, even a better tool that we have to look at you know, early changes? Or is it what we have now is what we get, is the best we can get out of imaging? No, I th think there are huge uh, unexplored areas in imaging. Um, I mean, sticking to AMD, we now have first ultra-high resolution OCT data going on where you actually start seeing individual lipid deposits, even in areas where you wouldn't see any drews uh, on a normal OCT. So I think that's an important step forward because with that technology, ideally, we will be able to diagnose AMD before you can see any drusen and your fundus photograph OCT. The other candidate technology is obviously uh, 
FLEO imaging, um, which you obviously know everything about. And then in AMD, it has been described this prolonged lifetimes in a C-shaped manner in this region where much later on in life, you typically see a reticular pseudodrusen. So I think this kind of signature needs to be investigated and needs to be investigated if this is really truly predictive of a later onset of AMD. And once we have these type of, let's say, predictive imaging, you obviously you could treat much sooner, ideally even with some lifestyle or dietary intervention. Okay, very good. Fantastic. So to recap, I mean, you've done a lot of research, a lot of important research, and I think fascinating, you really picked the right time. You know, you, you got into geographic atrophy about 10 years ago and uh, did all the imaging studies, a lot of imaging studies, and uh, now we have a treatment for geographic atrophy. So, you know, the whole research really gets into a different light um, and is also useful for treatment decisions. So I think it's absolutely fascinating what you've published and uh, the data you acquired and uh, and hopefully with all your really um, innovative ideas, uh, there will be a lot more research to come. So I'm really, really looking forward to the lecture at Uretina. I think there's a, there, there's a lot of unanswered questions that we still need to tackle in the next uh, couple of years and decade. And I really congratulate you again for uh, winning this prestigious award. Thank you so much for the kind words. A very worthy winner indeed, Martin. Uh, congratulations, Maximilian, and thank you so much for your time on the podcast today. If you want to see that lecture in person, you'll have to be at the Uretina Congress, which is taking place in Amsterdam in October. You can get details of the program and your tickets at uretina.org. That's it from us on the podcast. We'll see you next time on Talking Uretina.